Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to our Bibles now, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. You may remember we spent a good part of last year and working through the first half of Mark, but now we're returning after a bit of a break to the second half. And just to get your minds back in the Mark gear for a minute, we saw that in the first half of the book of Mark, there's a central focus on one particular question, and that question was, who is Jesus? Jesus had forced people to ask that question by what he said and did, and we saw the scribes asking the question, we saw the crowds asking the question, we saw his own disciples asking the question, who can this be? And yet as Jesus demonstrated his absolute authority in teaching the law over the physical world, over the spiritual world, and even over death itself, it increasingly became clear that there was only one possible answer to the question. And it was the answer that we saw Peter give in chapter 8, verse 29, when he said, Jesus is the Christ, that is the anointed Messiah of God, and he is the Son of the living God. Having spent the first eight chapters to establish who Jesus is, Mark is now going to turn in the second half of this gospel to a second question. See, having identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish people in the first century had a very particular idea of what that Messiah would do. But they didn't have it quite right. And so having led his disciples to see who he is, Jesus now begins to correct their assumptions and teach them what he has come to accomplish. And that is the focus of our text today as well as the chapters ahead. If you would follow along with me as we read Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 and down through the first verse of chapter 9. This is God's word. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in uh, in return for his soul? For whoever is shamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you speak by your spirit through your word? Draw us to Christ this morning, we pray. In his name, amen. Growing up, there were multiple reasons 
why I looked forward to my dad's birthday. For one, we got sweet rolls for breakfast on his birthday. We only got sweet rolls two days out of the year, his birthday and Father's Day. So it was a day to look forward to. But then there was also the birthday card battle between him and my aunt. They would compete each year to see who could rib the other most subtly or just most brutally through their birthday card. They're the the ones who would buy those cards in the Hallmark aisle that you think, that's hilarious, but I would never actually send that to someone that I know. And for some reason, I still remember one of the cards my aunt sent. I think it might have been for my dad's 40th birthday party, a prime opportunity to declare his old age. The card featured one of those car rearview mirrors. You know how it says on the rearview mirror, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And in the rearview mirror quickly approaching was the Grim Reaper. Uh, Apparently you turn 40 and death is on your heels. Now I made a, a good laugh for a 40th birthday card. But here in Mark, Jesus unexpectedly announces to his disciples that death is quickly approaching. And Jesus wasn't making a joke. Because he was announcing the main point of this passage and the main theme of the second half of Mark. And it is this. As the Messiah of God, Jesus came to die. And he calls his disciples to do the same. In our time together, I want to look first at Christ's commitment to the cross. And then I want to look at his call to us to the cross. Let's start by looking at verses 31 to 33, where we find Christ's commitment to the cross. So having just established who he was, Jesus immediately began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and then rise again. And I think in this verse, 31, the most striking word in the verse is the word must. So Jesus does not say that given the scribe's opposition, it's probably going to happen that he's going to die. Nor, nor does he say that in the divine foreknowledge, he just knows he's going to die. No, he says that his suffering and death is necessary. It is something that must happen. And the question that we might ask is why? Why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die? Scripture gives us a few reasons. To begin, Christ's suffering and death were the will of God for his Son. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father and and God the Son had agreed in the counsel of their will that the Son would suffer and die in order to redeem a people for himself. In Acts chapter 4, the first believers put it this way. They were praying and they prayed, O sovereign Lord, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, Jesus must suffer and die out of obedience to his Father to carry out his will. But of course... God had graciously given his people a promise ahead of time also that his anointed Messiah would suffer for them. If you look back to the Old Testament, this is what we find. Psalm 22, we find the Lord's anointed one forsaken with his garments divided up by lot. 
Isaiah chapter 53 predicts that the servant of the Lord would be stricken and afflicted for our iniquities. Zechariah chapter 12, God promises grace to his people when they look upon him whom they pierced. See, over, over and over in the Old Testament, God was saying his anointed one would suffer and die to redeem his people. And so if God is going to fulfill his word, if God is going to be proved true and faithful to his promises, then his anointed one must suffer and die. And this is what Jesus says. You remember after he rose from the grave and his disciples were bewildered at what had happened, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus begins to explain to them and he says that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus must suffer and die to fulfill his word. But maybe this just begs the question. Maybe it begged the question for the disciples. Maybe it begs the question in our mind. That's all very good, but why was it God's plan? Why did he send his son to death? And we quickly realize that the Messiah is to rule in God's kingdom. But if any of God's people are going to be in that kingdom, in God's presence... They must be redeemed from sin, which bars them from the presence of God. And in order to be redeemed from sin, death is required. Shedding of blood that would be great enough to be a propitiation, that is a satisfaction of the wrath of God, His just wrath against sin is necessary for His people to be redeemed. And if, if we were to look in more detail at Hebrews chapter 9 we would find Hebrews reminding us that the shedding of blood was necessary but it would then tell us that the tabernacle and the Old Testament sacrifices were not sufficient to open the way into the holy places in the presence of God but the author of Hebrews says when Christ appeared to offer his own blood Christ's death was sufficient to purify our conscience before God and secure an eternal redemption. And so why must Jesus die? To redeem his people from sin. But you see, if all of these are the reasons why Christ must die, the very glory of the situation is that Jesus came in history and died for us. Which means Jesus accomplished God's will. Jesus fulfilled God's word. Jesus opened a way of forgiveness and redemption for us. Not, not through doing the right things, not through being the right kind of person, not through being good enough, and through none of that, but through faith in him who had died for us. The amazing love of God as we sing, how can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? This is the commitment of Christ to the cross to fulfill the will of his father and to fulfill the word of the scriptures and to redeem a people for himself but you see the the disciples didn't understand all that yet it's completely out of the blue for them that jesus would announce that he's going to die and it seemed to peter that jesus being the messiah which he had just confirmed and jesus suffering and dying were mutually exclusive the two don't seem to fit together And Peter, being Peter, pulls Jesus aside and begins to remind him of this. 
He rebuked Jesus. And you can imagine the thinking of Peter. Jesus, the Messiah, is a victorious guy. He's a ruling in glory kind of guy. And, and maybe Peter thinks Jesus is just getting discouraged by the opposition of the Pharisees. And so he starts to say, Jesus, don't let that get to your head. None of this talk about suffering, defeat, and death. But turning around, Jesus rebukes Peter. In fact, he rebukes him by saying, get behind me, Satan. That might have been a little startling for Peter, I would think. But, but remember how Satan had tempted Jesus already in the wilderness, offering him glory if Jesus would bow down and worship Satan? Satan was tempting Jesus by trying to offer him glory in a way that would bypass suffering and death. And this temptation is a new angle on the same temptation. That it would invite Jesus to bypass suffering and death. And Jesus responds the same way he did in the wilderness. Be gone or get behind me, Satan. Then he explains to Peter, there in verse 33, that the problem with his statement, the reason he said such a thing in the first place, is that his mind is not set on things of God. His mind is set on the assumptions or the expectations or the mindset of man. It's worth maybe pausing for a brief moment to, to ask ourselves that very question because isn't the crux of the issue for Peter that he was wrapped up in the expectations and the things of man rather than the things of God the same crux of the problem for us that leads us to say and to do so many things that are foolish and sinful? That we have our minds set on the assumptions of the world and the desires of the world, and the thinking of man. While Christ calls us to be mindful of the things of God, the priorities of God, the calling of God, the expectations of eternity with God. And so R.C. Sproul, when he's commenting on this passage, asks all of us when we read this passage to ask ourselves, where is my heart? Where is my chief concern? Am I preoccupied with the things of this world? Or does my heart beat for the things of God? Am I seeking His kingdom and His righteousness? Or are other priorities consuming and driving me in what I do? What's shaping our lives? That was the crux of the question for Peter. And it's a question for us to ask ourselves as well. But one does wonder, as we read about Peter's response, if part of Peter's concern was a realization that if Jesus is going to suffer, what does that mean for those who are following Jesus? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, this guy's going to be king. I'll go ahead and come alongside him. It's another thing to publicly identify yourself with the guy who's about to be rejected and killed by the ruling authorities. And if that was Peter's concern... He was right, because looking around to the disciples and the crowds, Jesus issues to them a call to the cross, and that's the second thing I want to look at today. We find it in verses 34 and following. You know, Jesus' words in verse 34 are about as clear as could be. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, to come after me or to follow me is the wording Jesus uses to describe what it means to be one of his disciples. This is a description of anyone who would call themselves as a Christian. This should be true of them. 
This is a description of what must be true of anyone who would say, yes, I belong to Christ. I am His and I look forward to life with Him. To follow Jesus means to trust Jesus, to submit to Him and to follow wherever He leads. But Jesus declares this. He says, if you would be my disciple, if you're going to identify yourself with my name as a Christian, then you are going to have to follow me in suffering. There is no option to follow me in glory, but not to follow me in suffering. And so he says, you are going to have to take up your cross as I take up mine. Now we have to recognize a danger here because when we talk about bearing our crosses, that's become a fairly generic statement to just mean we'll put up with some unpleasantries. Maybe, maybe we said, you know, we're going to bear our crosses because my Southwest flight was delayed out of Denver this Christmas, or I'm going to bear my cross because I sprained my ankle and I'm out of basketball for a few weeks, or I'm going to bear my cross because I got COVID over the holidays and it was inconvenient. See, in the first century, a cross had only one meeting. It was an image of agonizing pain, of unmitigated shame, and dehumanizing suffering and the worst death one could imagine. To take up your cross was to make a decision to expose yourself to genuine, life-altering loss for the sake of Christ. And that is the kind of discipleship Jesus has in mind here. It's quite a sales pitch, isn't it? Follow me in suffering and death. Why in the world would anyone take up such an offer? Well, you'll notice that in verses 35 through chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus gives four reasons and one assurance for why we should take up his offer. First, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, I think it's important to note here that Jesus is not just generally calling one to the benefits of self-denial as if, hey, as long as we keep up our strict diet, even through peak Christmas cookie season, we'll reap the long-term benefits of that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And the point that Jesus is making, if you can picture one of those graphs from economics or math or something is that there is an inverse relationship between our focus on the rewards of this life and our comfort and success here and our focus on eternity with Him. And Jesus says, if our desire and our priority is to save or prosper our lives on earth, then we are immediately putting that at the cost of the hope of eternal life. Whereas if we are willing to lose our life now to prioritize Christ and his priorities and his call, we may lose our life now, but we will gain it for all eternity. And it is that inverse relationship that Jesus says is the first reason why we should be willing to lose our life for Christ's sake. But if this were not convincing enough, Jesus adds a second reason in verse 36. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, most of us will not come anywhere near gaining the whole world in this life. Most of us can probably expect maybe a reasonable home and a small lot and maybe a car and 2.5 kids behind us in the minivan. And we think, I could never imagine gaining the whole world. But let's just imagine for the sake of the argument that you can gain the entire world. 
Let's say you're offered multiple Powerball lottery winnings and you're offered immediately fame and a position of power and authority. You were given it all for however many decades you have left on this earth. Would it be worth getting all of that for those decades on earth if the trade-off was your soul and losing hope for all eternity? And the answer we should be quick to say is no way. This is the lesson of Esau. If you remember the Old Testament in Jacob and, and Esau, and Esau traded his entire birthright, the double inheritance that was going to come to him. He exchanged that birthright for one bowl of soup on an afternoon when he was hungry. And Scripture calls this utter folly. That is an example of losing our soul for eternity by focusing on this life. See, the whole world, not to mention the things we can actually get, are potato chips compared to eternity in the glory of God. But if that's not convincing enough, Jesus adds a third question. He says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, let's say eternal life is at stake compared to eternal death. How much would we be willing to pay to get that eternal life as opposed to that eternal death? Is it $1,000? Is it a million dollars? Is it giving up a life of comfort to serve Christ? What is it worth? And Jesus' rhetorical question is saying, how could we even put a value on the worth of our souls and eternity? Would we not give up anything that we might be with him? Now, there's some of us who are saying, well, yes, that's all well and good, but can't I just have a fair bit on this earth and eternal life? But Jesus is saying, what you have on this earth is not up to you. It's up to me. I'll give you what you need on this earth. What's up to you is to make a decision that you will value Christ not the things on this earth. And it becomes even more clear in his fourth point, which he makes in verse 38, when he says, Whoever is ashamed of me, of him I will be ashamed when I come in the glory of my Father and the holy angels. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you don't get the choice of whether you are going to be rejected or not. Every single one of us is going to be shamed and rejected by someone. The question is, Will we be ashamed of Christ in this world and want to hold on to the acceptance the world gives us? And if so, then Christ will reject us when he comes into his kingdom. Or do we want Christ to accept us when he comes in power and glory? And if so, we must be willing to be rejected in this world. Because as scripture reminds us in James and 1 John and other words, the world and Christ are at enmity with one another. We can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't straddle love for this world and comfort here and the call of the gospel. We will be on one side or the other. And Christ calls us to follow him and to take up our cross. So these four statements, Jesus captures the decision in front of us, the worthlessness of the priorities of this world and the value of eternal life with him. But I think Jesus recognizes that this world and its comforts and the cost of being rejected are very tangible. They're right in front of us. The pain of suffering is very real to us. Whereas the long-term future hope of eternity with God can seem rather vague and distant 
at times. And so Jesus wants to issue an assurance to his disciples. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, you see that Jesus says, No, this hope is not vague. It is not just in some distant future. Some of you in this lifetime, he says, will see the kingdom of God in power. And its power and glory will make it all the more evident that it is worth trading anything this world has to offer, even agony and the shame of the cross, to lay hold of life with me in my kingdom. Now the natural question is, well, what was Jesus referring to when he said that they would see the kingdom of God in power in their lifetime? And commentators toss this ball up and debate, and some think Jesus was referring to the transfiguration in the next passage, which gives them a, a vision of glory. Some think he was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, but I believe that Jesus is referring to his resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. See, in his resurrection, Jesus conquers the grave and is a living example right in front of them of the resurrected bodies we will share in glory. And in his ascension, he was visibly and publicly manifested as the Son of God. And in the pouring out of the Spirit with power at Pentecost, the kingdom of God is seen in power as his people are converted and drawn to him. And when that very generation saw Jesus' resurrected body and his ascension and the power of the kingdom at Pentecost, it was proof of the life that they would have for them. A visible, tangible proof of what was promised and a tantalizing promise of what's ahead to back up Jesus' call that it is worth taking up our cross now for what's ahead. Well, as we come to a close, let me just offer a final comment on dying for Jesus' sake. Because we might hear this and we think, well, that's all very well and good to say, but what exactly does that mean for me in America in 2023? The group of Christians who were in the forest in Algeria worshiping when they were surrounded at gunpoint and all of their Bibles and hymn books and instruments were confiscated and they were registered as offenders of the law just 10 days ago. Those believers, they were suffering loss for the sake of Christ. But what about me? Well, the call for us is to suffer loss for Christ's sake too. And it's going to look different for different disciples of Christ. Peter, who was right here, was going to be crucified upside down. John, who also heard this statement, would live out his life and die a natural death, though on the island of Patmos. It will look different. For us, the loss may look like saying no to temptation for the sake of Christ. It may look like giving up our material possessions for Christ's sake rather than holding on to them ourselves. It may look like giving up things we love to follow God's call to the mission field. It may look like giving up time with the friends we enjoy to help those who are in need. It may look like a number of things, but here's the point I want to make. Christ's call is not about particular decisions that I'll make here and there and in this situation. Christ's call is a summons to a perpetual death to ourselves so that we are no longer our own. My life is not my own. My life belongs to Christ and I will follow wherever he will lead. We don't choose where that is or where that isn't. But this, this call is a call to no longer be our own 
but to belong to Christ. It's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, each of the specific decisions we might make not to sin in a certain way, to be willing to risk rejection, to give up things. Each of those decisions is just the fruit or the evidence of the commitment we have made that we are not our own. We belong to Christ and we will follow wherever he leads. After all, that's what Christ did. Living in order to die, to fulfill God's plan, to demonstrate the perfect faithfulness of God's word and character and to accomplish redemption for us, for any of us who will look to him in faith and follow his call to lose our life now for Christ's sake in the gospel that we might have an inheritance in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And that is an exchange that is always worth it. Let's pray. Father, How I pray that we would be struck again by the call of Christ to die. To die in order to redeem a sinful people. To die in order to redeem us. Who all of our good deeds are but filthy rags compared to the perfect, holy righteousness of God. Whose commitment to ourselves and our success and our comfort in this life is nothing but a rejection of your call in order to live life our way. And the only hope for us is the death of the Son of God. And yet it was a hope that you fulfilled by sending your Son to the cross for our sake. And Father, you now call us to take up our cross and follow you. May we do it, not begrudgingly, maybe with some trepidation, not knowing what it will include, but may we do it eagerly and willingly for your sake and for the hope of the gospel that you have given us through him. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.